Welcome to our podcast, Transparently Speaking. I am Diana, and I have a son who transitioned at a young age to become his true self. And I am Joy. I have also supported my daughter to transition at an early age. We are here to share our experience and our learning along this journey. We want to provide support and guidance parent to parent. And if you find yourself on a similar journey, we want you to know that you are not alone. So let's dive in, transparently speaking. All right, so I thought, Joy, today we could talk a little bit about our experience as we navigated the first step in medical treatment, which was puberty blockers, because I know that I feel like our experience was a little bit different between us. So I wanted to open up and let you start. Awesome. Well, thank you, Diana. Um, Yeah, I think I was actually just reflecting on this this weekend as I met up with a friend for an outside walk here during our crazy pandemic times. And I was reflecting on this because it was already several months ago that Samantha had her puberty blockers placed. And I was reflecting upon, you know, making the decision to actually have them placed and what was it about that decision that was challenging for me? And I think what I was sharing with my friend and what I came to realize is that I perceive some risks associated with making that decision. And this concept of being challenged as a parent to be supporting our kids, you know, in being who they are and who they want to be, and yet recognizing that they're making decisions perhaps, or that I'm supporting them in a decision that they won't fully understand the implications of. And so I think about that from a couple of different perspectives, but I think my struggle in this case was, or what I came to realize was that I felt like there's some risk in making this choice. There's risk in choosing to have the hormone blockers placed. And so for my daughter, Samantha, I think I maybe always had a vision that she um, would have a family and that she would have her own biological family. And so one of the things that I realized by placing her, by choosing to help her have the hormone blockers placed is that she would not develop far enough along in male puberty in order to develop um, sperm or semen that could, you know, be used or saved for future IVF type procedure. And that felt sort of limiting to me. And I think in an ideal world, I would have loved her to have the chance to do something like that. Um, But when I talked with her about, again, her desire for knowing puberty is coming, how she wants to experience that and how to support her well-being in this space. So Samantha definitely had no interest in developing facial hair or any other male characteristics that might come along with um, her developing puberty. And so it really clearly was the only answer to support her in that. And I think what I was realizing as I was talking with a friend is that this continuous, I guess, juxtaposition of my interests for my child, maybe, versus my child's interests. 
And, um, and also just wondering, you know, there's so much we don't know about our world. And in this case, I'm thinking, are there other risks? Are there other medical risks associated with the blockers? Um, you know, is there something else that might happen? And I think my initial thought was, well, yeah, I don't know. I think I just was stuck on, there's so much we don't know about this. What else, you know, potentially negative could happen um, from starting these? And choosing again or feeling like I'm making choices for her before she can fully understand the implications of those choices. Right. I think um, coming from the medical field, I had very different, like, I don't think of it as risky, to be honest with you. I mean, we always say they're not always a never, so I could never tell anyone there'll never be a problem, right? But um, the medication used has been used for decades in precocious puberty patients. So I remember there was a frontline special and I don't know what the doctor exactly said, but in the edited portion that you saw on TV, they said, oh, it's so experimental. It's so new. It's so experimental. And I just really thought they did a lot of disservice with that messaging. They might've elaborated on it, but that's the way it was edited out. Because I was like, well, first off, we've used it for decades. And, you know, there's the scientific argument, well, that's for a different reason. So, you know, precocious puberty are kids that start puberty earlier um, than expected. Lots of risks to that. So they stop the puberty using the same medication that they do to stop um, kids of trans experience puberty until they feel the body is appropriately ready until there's some peer concordance and so forth. So I didn't see this drug as super experimental. I think the other aspect of it is that it's been used, I think it's been used in this country for probably about 15 years at this point and was previously used in the Netherlands for even longer before that. And let's be honest, there's some blood pressure medications that are we use that are younger than that. I mean, there's a lot of medications out there we use that are younger than that. So um, I'm not saying it's the oldest medication around, but I guess for those reasons, um, I, I didn't really consider it risky. And with any choice we make, right, it's benefits versus risks. And at that point in time, that the decision came for us, you know, my child uh, was checking their chest every day, multiple times a day, very anxious for uh, chest buds to begin. And when they did appear, um, you know, it was tears and anxious feelings of when, when do we stop this? Like, this isn't going to go any further, right? So um, I think the benefit of, of relieving that, um, that anxiety far outweighed it. And I think to your point on fertility, I don't think that we know that there's any concerns with fertility on puberty blockers alone. Now that's not talking about cross-sex hormones. Um, I don't know that we know that for sure, but I guess I, I approach the issue of fertility a little differently because of my background in OBGYN. And I guess even before I went on this journey with my, with my child, with Clark, before um, Arthur and I had children, you know, we, there were three 
assumptions we never would have. And one of the three was we'd never assumed they would have children, whether because they did not want to have children and we didn't want to put that on them as our desire or whether they couldn't have children. And I guess that's one thing I often say, like fertility is guaranteed to nobody. Uh, and that's definitely one thing I've learned and seen. Having said that, I'm not, I don't mean to dismiss, it's a little bit different when you feel like you're driving that ship than when it just happens for whatever reason. But I think it came for those reasons um, of why I felt very comfortable with the puberty blockers versus watching my child in distress over his body changing in a way that was not how he identified. Um, I think that's what created the ease for me for that decision. Having said that, I do think as a parent, there's this realization like this is really happening. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, totally. Yeah. I think yeah. there's different steps along the way of realizing the changes, the life that you're having. The first is that social transition. And then you kind of hit an even keel and it's just life and it's no big deal. And then the medical transitions, this next step that all of a sudden you're faced with, okay, this is like, this is being a going, could become ongoing medical care, you know? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's what I realized is it's becoming real at another level. And it was that first next step kind of to, um, to be supporting my child, but also for it becoming maybe even more real or the implications of it. Cause I think exactly like you said, the very first step in supporting my child with a social transition and a name change and supporting how they wanted to be present in the world and how they wanted to appear to others in the world. Um, And this step was in order to continue supporting that, requiring that transition into the medical experience. And I don't know if this word is too strong, but I feel like there is a bit of a mourning process definitely at the beginning, but it almost like gets revisited with medical treatment. I think that's fair. I think this concept of mourning or grieving, um, and I know we've talked about this, but this, our expectations in our head, again, of who our child was or what that fu- what our own personal future was going to include with our child And I think that's really what this recent conversation with a friend uncovered for me was maybe again, um, mourning some other expectations that I had or or by choosing to support my child in the first step of this medical uh, transition. I think I acknowledge and recognize exactly what you were saying, Diana, that the blockers themselves don't limit fertility, but they're the first step on, on the path to which my child will never develop or go through puberty in such a way that they can have a biological child themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what, you know, that struggle was for me, or again, feeling like I'm making choices that again, my child at the age of 11 um, 
will not understand. At the time, my child, Samantha, was only 10, um, you know, but so we're making these choices again and trying to support them in the best way we can. And there's definitely some angst, I think, in, in trying to feel like you're making good choices um, based on the best information we have at the time. Right. And I don't know if you think it also plays a role too that at least at the very beginning, you know, um, when a child first transitions, especially at the young ages um, we experience is like, what if they change their mind later? And along with that morning, I kind of feel like it gets revisited again. Um, as you think, as now you're taking a medical step, do those questions return? What if they change their mind later? Is this the right thing to do? I don't think for me, I experienced it as much. I can't say it didn't slip into my head, but I feel like because we had so many years under our belt of unwavering identity, that um, that was an easy thought to brush aside. I think that is fair, Diana. I think though, even what I'm realizing as we talk about it is this first step that we've just taken in the medical transition, the first step of the blockers here for Samantha, you know, is not the deciding factor in that space, right? right. That, that we do still have a period of time in which, you know, um, if there were, again, I, I don't anticipate that being the case, but if there were some new awareness or change in terms of their identity, um, that there would still be an opportunity. Um, and so I think what I'm afforded right now, again, is a period of about two years is my understanding. So since uh, Samantha is 11, um, previously my understanding was that around the age of 14 is when they would be consideration for the cross-sex hormones. And it was interesting because we just had our checkup to check uh, blood levels to ensure that the blocker was performing or reducing testosterone levels as desired. Uh, but the conversation led to, okay, so what's next? You know, how do we, what is the process now to maintain this trans transition um, or the first step again in just the blockers? And it was the conversation on when is the timing to be considering sex hormones and what happens then in between there. And so we're kind of afforded this, I would say kind of another two free years where we don't need to make those choices at this point, which is right. a bit freeing, um, but also puts a timeline to it, which is helpful in just keeping in mind the path that we're on. And I think you make a good point there for the listeners that may not be familiar um, puberty blockers that we're talking about are reversible. So you take the puberty, you stop using the puberty blocker and the body will go forward with puberty. But the reason we stop puberty is that those are irreversible changes that, um, that the child may not desire, that may not be aligned with their identity. So like you're saying, it gives you that couple of years to just put the pause on everything so that no irreversible changes are occurring um, to help give a little bit more time to think and decide. Whereas cross-sex hormones, which means if your body is designed to produce estrogen, a cross-sex hormone would be testosterone and vice versa is true. So before those take place, creating 
irreversible changes or whatever your body, um, I should say, produces the majority of, right? Because all of our bodies produce estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, but whatever your body's designed to produce in majority can go ahead and, um, and those are irreversible. So that's the pods we're talking about. Thank you for ensuring to provide that base level of education. Um, super helpful, Diana, because I think in the midst of our experience, some of that comes, you know, a second nature to us and recognize that our listeners are across a broader experience than, than the two of us are. So thank you very much for ensuring there's that base level of awareness uh, for everybody listening here today. With that, I'm wondering, is there any kind of final thought you'd love to leave the group with or anything we can wrap up with here? There was, I had a thought about something that could be as you were talking about, oh, maybe the concept of fertility and how crazy the world is, right? That even transgender people, that was a conversation with my friend. It was so interesting. And I had joined a webinar to learn more about that, but that um, that creates this another level of complexity in terms of societal expectations around who's able to give birth and what they might present as in terms of their gender and what their ability is actually to um, carry and deliver a baby. And that potentially could be a future topic for us. Um, but Diana, is there anything you'd like to leave the, the audience with here as we wrap up today? Yeah, I would say that um, I hope... Our, for our listeners that may be on a similar journey, that this can give them some information as well as support that whatever their feelings are, that they are real and they are okay, and that we all may experience these steps differently, and that is okay as well. Um, so I hope we made room for that. And I hope for those listeners not on a journey, but just wanting to learn more, can understand I think I see it as simplicity and complexity of these steps. So, mm, yeah, and the steps being the experience or the process of supporting our children in their experience. Right. Because I think there we get a lot of questions over what now, what's the next step. And I think the only thing that we didn't mention because both of our children chose the route of blocking puberty is that there is always the option to not block puberty that um, some kids may choose depending on how they see themselves in their bodies. So just know yeah. that lots of options are there. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really fair um, is there are always various paths people may take. And again, our experience is having children who identified at a very young age um, in such a way as to lead us down this particular path. But I know both of us are very familiar with and friends with others whose children actually became more aware or were able to articulate their dysphoria only upon entering puberty. Um, and having experience where once their body starts to change, that it becomes, that's what sort of triggers their awareness or knowledge of, oh, something isn't right in terms of I'm developing this way, but that's not who I am. Um, and so our discussion today was very focused 
on our experience of our children who as very young people had awareness of their identity prior to an experience with puberty. For sure. And I think they both also expressed the desire not to <laughs> experience what they're, you know, in, in Clark's case, not to develop breasts. And yep. um, in Samantha's case, was it the yes. facial hair? It was the facial hair because her, her dad had a beard. And so that's what, you know, that's was kind of always one of my check-ins, you know, Hey, we're at this point where we're going to need to make a decision soon. Right. So, you know, how do we want to develop? Is it okay if you have, you know, some facial hair and that would be a, that was a hard no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, um, Diana and to all of our listeners here today. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode of Transparently Speaking. Thanks for joining us today. Join us again on the 1st and 15th of every month for our next podcast. Thank you to Filter for our awesome music. That's P-H-I-L-T-Y-R. Check them out at Apple Music, YouTube Music, Spotify, or anywhere you download music. As a reminder, we welcome your feedback and questions. Email us anytime at transparentlyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. If you're taking something away from our podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment to provide us a review. The more listeners and reviews, the more people we can reach and support. Thanks in advance. Cheers from Joy and Diana.